Welcome to the Turkey Hunter Podcast, the original all-turkey, all-the-time podcast with your co-hosts Andy Galliano and Cameron Weddington. In our weekly podcast, we're going to bring you some wild turkey calling tips like this. From there, we're going to go into, she's aggravated, there's another hen that's challenged her, or she's challenging another hen, she's going to cut an excited yelp. Advice from old pro turkey hunters like this. The turkeys typically don't like, I think, more times than not, to travel in an easterly direction into the sun first thing in the morning, especially after he gets up. It's a blinding thing. It, it, it's just like you. It's hard for you to see into the sun. Mm-hmm. So if I have a choice, I'm going to try to make it so that I'm going to be on the west side in the morning east side in the afternoon of a turkey exciting live hunts like this holy crap they're coming teach you how to cook your bird with advice such as this with some fresh rosemary and garlic and then cool that off and spread that along the inside of that butterflied turkey breast that we've seasoned on both sides wildlife management tips for your property especially with turkeys like this if you look at the type of habitats that turkeys need for nesting and brooding that tends to be habitat that can be managed more successfully with growing season fire than with dormant season fire. And hopefully along the way, we'll get plenty of these. Well, on November the 28th of 1953, I was attached. When I popped out of my mom and the baby doctor spanked me on the bottom, I went, oh, and I've been doing it ever since. <laughs> I like that. Thank you for tuning in, and now, for this week's show. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. You are listening to episode number 360, What Are Fall Turkeys Up To? with Dr. Mike Chamberlain. And I am your co-host and the guy who has dressed his girl up in a new outfit. And I'm your co-host, and the guy who's getting his arrows ready for Saturday. Oh, yeah. Big day Turkey coming season's up. back, baby. Yeah. <laughs> Fall turkey open Saturday with a bow, but I can't wait. Yeah. Looks like the weather's going to be awesome. Oh, I, 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 you know, even if I don't see any turkeys, it's just going to be an epic morning to just get to go sit out in the woods, you know, and just yeah. enjoy a, a beautiful, you know, 50-degree fall morning. I mean, I can't wait. This this cool weather's got me fired up. Yeah. Well, and I'm sure it was a little bit of a, you know, maybe a little selfish reason to get Mike Chamberlain on this week, but, you know. <laughs> Very selfish. <laughs> not ever a bad guest to have on the show. I mean, he's just, he just absolutely loves wild turkeys, as you guys know, and... 
is a wealth of knowledge about wild turkeys, as you guys know. And, you know, he's just, he's doing everything that he can do to help the birds, you know, other than maybe killing a few himself every season. <laughs> but, yeah. hey, who's not or who doesn't want to that's listening to the show? So, you know, I'm I'm pumped up about having Mike back on. It was an awesome interview. I mean, I don't know, maybe maybe you and I suck so bad at this that just having any guest on here is like mind blowing what they bring to the table. Wow. They're so unique. You know? <laughs> they're so fun to listen to compared to us. Oh, so, but it's another great interview and it's a long one. So let's get into it after I tell you this 183 days, 14 hours, 20 minutes, and 29 seconds is when opening day of spring turkey season in Alabama, I mean, Puerto Rico, will be. That's that's music to my ears right there. I, I can't wait. So we're 191 days here in Alaska till spring turkey season opens, but three days from now, I'll be turkey hunting again. Heck yeah. I'll be at very low odds situation, gobbler hunting with a bow in the fall, but better than sitting at the house. <laughs> Man, all you gotta do is have your corn pile out there and yeah, that's set a, you up a decoy. And, sit in your yeah, blind. That's the that's the whole deal. I, I found finally. I've been struggling to find turkey sign, gobbler sign. On Sunday, I found a dust bowl, a feather, and gobbler dropping. So I've got a trail camera up on it. I'm gonna, I'm letting it run all week. If, if I got some pictures of him coming there often, that'll be where I set up. There you go. First thing. Uh, saturday but anyway yeah let's hop in here and talk to mike oh, and wait, the, wait, have a tease and haven't oh, told yeah. anybody about it are you talking about your e-bike my it's not an e-bike dude it's a motorcycle <laughs> your hog yeah the harley yeah my piglet that's what i'm going to name it yeah, the piglet i like it it's not a hog it's you a piglet it. You got the paint camo. You got you got it dipped finally. I dipped it, man. It is sharp looking. You gotta send me a picture. You sent me a picture. Of everything else you dipped. I hadn't seen it though. Well, so I haven't put it back together, but I'm gonna send you a picture of the of the pieces that I dipped. And nice. yeah, I've got to paint the frame because the part of the frame's yellow. So I've got to paint that. I was gonna paint mm-hmm. it. You know, either I don't know some some neutral earth tone in a flat as well and but i've got to take it completely apart in order to paint that so anyway yeah i'm i'm stoked about the way the camo dip turned out i ended up having to use my guest bathtub in my house (laughs) of course i was not going to use my bathtub in the master because well i do if things went wrong (laughs) i like being married yeah and so yeah it but i had i had been using a cooler, a very large cooler, to dip the items into, but these panels off of my piglet are too are too big to dip in the cooler, so I ended up having to use the guest bathtub mm. and lined it. I was very smart. I lined it with plastic. Nice. That was a good idea. Yeah, put the water in there, dip that bad baby, and she's looking slick. That's awesome. I, I can't wait to see the final product. You'll have to post that on our Facebook page. You won't be able to see it. It's going to be a <laughs> camouflage blur. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be like uh, the invisible 
invisible car or whatever on SpongeBob. You know, you just don't even see it. You'll just be riding around on nothing. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I'm, so. I'm looking forward to it. You'll send me a picture of you just floating on air and I'll know the bike somewhere under you. That'll work. That'll work. <laughs> Cool. Very well, cool. let's hop in here and talk to Mike about fall turkeys, research, and various other turkey topics. Very interesting stuff, as oh, always. Let's do it. See you guys on the other side. Hey, everybody. Cameron and I are excited to tell you that we have on the line with us today Dr. Mike Chamberlain. And you guys all know Mike already. So I'm going to, well, I guess I'll spare the long intro, but. The doctor in front of his name, if you don't know Mike, means if he's on this show, he's a biologist and a scientist, and he studies turkeys, among other things. And so we're just going to really just cover a hodgepodge of topics today with Mike and kind of hear what is going on in their world this time of year. And Mike, how are you, sir? I'm doing well, guys. How about y'all? Very well. You doing very well. Yep. So before we get in and start talking turkeys, I saw quite a few pictures recently with you and some trophies from look like an African safari. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us, tell yeah. us a little bit yeah. about that. What all did you kill? Where did you go? How long were you there? Why didn't you take me with you? I fold up nicely <laughs> into a duffel bag. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about the lack of invite. <laughs> yeah, that was a trip. I had actually planned that trip to take my son over as quote unquote like a, a graduation gift, if you will, and from high yeah. school. And and I told him, you know, look, I'll get you over there, and then you're on your own. You're you're gonna have to, you know, spend your own money, and and okay. you decide what you want to hunt, and we'll have a good time. And we really didn't. We were really weren't super ambitious. I, I, I'll say that. But COVID, of course, delayed that. It was supposed to occur last summer. Okay. And the pandemic shut that down. And so we got bumped to this this summer. And as you can imagine, travel was weird. It was bizarre. Mm-hmm. The direct flights from the U.S. to South Africa, which is where we went, they had been altered. So there were connecting flights through Europe mm-hmm. at this time. That was that was strange because international travelers were kind of stuck in in one terminal. The the amenities, if you will, restaurants, coffee shops, that type of thing, were were quite limited. Yeah. Of course, everyone's in mask. Uh, the number of travelers was really low, so it, it was different. I, this was my I guess this was my fourth time over there, and I, I love I love traveling. Period. But I I have a fondness for for Africa. It's it's just a, a stunning place to be, and um, yeah. it was different. It was very different, but we had a great time. Once once we got there, it was wonderful. It was just getting there and getting home that was those were the challenges. Once we got there, we we met a professional hunter who Chris, who's a, a very good friend of mine, and and we just had a blast. We we relaxed and and we were able to take some really nice some nice trophies and very blessed to to have the resources to do that. That's certainly not lost on me. We had a good time. We we were act again. My my son and I, you know, he's off to college. He's doing his own thing. He he's his own man, and he doesn't he doesn't quote unquote need dad, you know, like he like he did when he was younger. So it was nice to it was nice to connect and and just share a bunk with each other, you know, a room with each other for for a little more than a week, and and just hunt and focus on that. And we turned our phones off and we ignored social media. We ignored life, and it was uh it was therapeutic to be honest. After the last year and a half and how busy things have been it was it was really it was really cool yeah 
Well, you guys had some beautiful trophies and tell us a little, or, you know, I guess three or four of the animals that you took over there. Yeah. So I, I had my, I had my heart set on a sable. I've, yeah. That's an animal I've looked at for years since I was a kid. I'll be honest, since I was a kid and I read Capstick and some of the, you know, the, the books about it, hunting in Africa that many, many people read. I was just infatuated with that animal. And on my previous trips over there, I just, you know, I just said I'm not willing to, to put the kind of resources into to hunting one animal as it takes to hunt that animal. But yeah. as time has gone on, the, the, the trophy fees, which some people will, will hear and think and get a negative connotation about, but I'll, I'll explain that. Um, the fee to, to harvest that animal has declined dramatically in the past six or seven years. So I told my outfitter, I said, look, I'd, I'd really like to, to try to hunt a sable and and my son, you know, Austin, he had, you know, impala, very, you know, kind of generic things as the staple of, of an African hunting yeah. trip. We both wanted to take zebra, which are, are stunning. Um, but that sable was top. <laughs> that, that animal kicked our tail. Really? Yes. He was. So a lot of, a lot of times you, you, you see sable hunting and it's in kind of flat ground. Well, we were in the Limpopo province, and we were in the the Waterberg Mountains. And this group of sable that we had found this bull in was they were using the very top of this mountain because mm. there was a water source up there. And so, you, as you can imagine, you, you're both hunters. You're you're sage about this. They had the upper ground. You know, they had the high ground. We yeah. had to come from below every day. So, with the thermals and the way wind operates over there they constantly beat us they beat us in the mornings they beat us in the afternoons and it, it seemed like it wasn't going to happen frankly and we just caught lightning in a bottle we happened to be hiking up the mountain and the tracker sammy who who is just hilarious and he's such a great person he says mike there you're saving and he's pointing at like 600 yards up the side of this canyon i'm like i don't even see an animal up there and, <laughs> and sure enough there's that that black blob is sitting there and that's that sable and he's by himself ironically he had been with his group but he's split off from the group and he's by himself down slope anyway we we stalk up to within it ended up being a very long shot and and i made it um and it was it was a blessing man i tell you i was i was so stoked and to have my my son there it was it was so cool and, and he ended up being you know i'm not i'm not much of an inches counting guy I, I do see value in it, uh, particularly. I may, I mean, I tape out all my all the deer I kill, and I do that particularly for deer that I kill that I've I've grown that I've I have experience with because a lot of my sweat and hard work has gone into producing that animal, and I want to know. Yeah. But I'm not, you know, I don't I don't post that and say, hey, here's a 152 inch deer, whatever. But this sable was just stunning, <laughs> and and my outfitter, he was like, we got, I can't wait to get back and get a tape on this thing and we were both we were both shocked i mean it, this thing was a 46 inch nice which is huge yeah he was just stunning so that that was kind of the, the highlight of the trip and but we both took zebra which are really which are really cool and and anybody that thinks it's like shooting a horse needs to go experience it it's not shooting a horse zebra are really cunning they use the wind they use their eyes and ironically a lot of other animals spend time with them 
and there's oh, yeah. a reason for that. Yeah. So when you find a zebra, a group of zebra, you're finding something else. Huh. And the the collective result is you got a bunch of eyes looking at you. Yeah. And it, it becomes really, it can be tough to hunt zebra. In fact, if you talk to people that have hunted in Southern Africa a number of times, many of them will tell you, particularly archery, that zebra are one of the more difficult species to get because there are usually so many eyes and ears around them. And it, it makes sense once you watch their behavior. So so that was cool. We both took some really, really big impala, which are one of my favorite animals, and they're awesome table fare. So we were, we were able to enjoy that. My son took a bush pig, which is... <laughs> It's beginner's luck. Mm-hmm. That was the first animal he took in South Africa on his first trip, and I've never seen one in the daylight. That's and a good trophy. Heck yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was wonderful, and they they were deli- That was delicious. Chris's wife Sabina, she she prepares the meals and she lets us sample. You know, because they know it's important to me. I want to sample what we harvest, so I want to I want to taste it. I want to know what it tastes like, and if I have to wait a few days for it to age, that's fine. I want to taste it so that I can say that. My hunt's complete. You know, I, I hunted the animal, I harvested the animal, and I and I, I consumed it. And the bush pig was fantastic. It was absolutely fantastic. So all in all, we had a we had a good trip. I I hated to come home, but we made it home and we were safe and and we were blessed to be able to do it. Yeah, can't ask much more than that. That I looked at that sable on your Instagram. That that is an absolutely stunning animal. <laughs> Just they're so, they're so beautiful. They are, they are beautiful. so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very, very, very beautiful. That's great. And anyone listening to the show who has not been to Africa, whether you go to hunt or you just go to visit, you need to go. I mean, yes. But especially even if you go to visit, try to squeeze in, you know, contact an outfitter and and try to arrange a two or three day, you know, quick little hunt with them. But you won't regret that. But it is a place that gets in your blood and you just, you know, for me, it's like, okay, how can I get back? When can I get back? Yeah. Yeah. You're planning your next trip on the flight home. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes sooner. Sometimes you're actually thinking about how can I save enough money to make this work again as soon as possible? And that's Mm -hmm. what I've done. And my wife, she'll, she'll testify to this. When I get back, I'm already planning the next, it may be four years from now, five years from now, but I'm already trying to figure out, okay, how much money, if I stick away 200 bucks a month, or if I stick away this, or if I do this, seriously, when can I get back? You're right, Andy, that it gets in your blood. And, and I, I think it's made me a better hunter. In fact, I know it's made me a better hunter because watching people that have senses that I don't have, watching trackers be able to do things that I can't or could not do and still can't nearly to their their abilities, but watching what they do and how they, they see game and how they can judge game in the blink of an eye is it's actually, it's, it's very humbling to sit there with them and realize that we've got the best spotting scopes and the best glass and the best rifles and all these things. And still, I don't know a person that's hunted over there that would tell you they think that they can spot or track game anywhere close to what those people can do. It's unbelievable. And I'm yeah. sure you experienced this. It's, it's absolutely unbelievable. And, and they're so woods smart. They're so sage as far as what they're seeing the sign how old it is what left it i look down there and i see sand and i'm like what the hell is this guy looking at i mean like how can he tell that that's an impala track versus this or that and it's just amazing and and i I think 
that's made me a, a much better hunter because it's it's forced me and I've seen I've caught myself doing this. I've paid attention to things that I would not have normally paid attention to. I've done it turkey hunting, I've done it deer hunting, just just things that I hear, things I see, tracks, sign that I look back and think, you know, the reason that that stuck out to me was because Sammy pointed that out to me five years ago or whatever. It's a, it's a measure. It, like you said, it, it gets in your blood. It's really a, a mesmerizing, addictive place to go. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, man, I'm glad you guys had a great time. And, you know, the first time I went was with my oldest brother and my dad. And that's an experience I will take to my grave with me oh i'm sure i'm sure yeah it it just was an amazing trip i can't even tell you what i had for lunch yesterday but i can tell you what i had for dinner the second night we were there on that trip <laughs> you know and that that's been yeah. over 20 years ago so just do you do you keep journals when you're over there i do actually yeah so do i yeah, yeah. and so. I've, I've looked back on those journals and read them kind of out loud to myself and it's funny, I, I can recollect things when I read those journals, just like you said, that it's so clear to me that I can see it. I can literally see the event occurring, yet I don't remember an email that I typed two hours ago. Oh, yeah. But I can, <laughs> I can see those hunts with utmost clarity. And not that I, you know, I don't see other hunts with that clarity, but as you know, when you get over there, it's kind of, it's kind of, um, it's overwhelming to yes. some degree because you're you're jet lagged and you're tired but yet your your adrenaline is pumping and you're so excited and and the people are new and the experiences are new so you you get tired really fast but yet you don't know that you're tired to me the fact that i can recollect things that happened over there with such clarity yet things that happened here in my own life i just totally forget about is just telling yeah indeed cameron you need to put it on the list yeah, y'all y'all definitely got that wheel turning in my head now because that that sounds like no no turkeys though no turkeys oh. but uh, guinea fowl yeah guinea fowl guineas. there's some good there's some good bird hunting there's actually yeah. some good bird hunting we did we did the guinea fowl which was cool huh. so yeah there's some stuff for the traditional bird hunter Cameron don't 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 feel like you hey, you have some, to go big game hunt there's you got to do something the other nine months of the year you know so that's that's true <laughs> that is very true yeah. Very cool. Man, I'm glad y'all got to do that. That's awesome. And hopefully you'll get to do it again here soon together. I hope so. I hope so. Well, I've talked about that with my wife, but that's my hope. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, so I had, I'll kick off the turkey related questions here. So one yeah. thing, I guess this is going to be a two part question and you can take whichever one you want. I'm interested in knowing, let's just say here in the Southeast where you've done most of your work, what are the turkeys up to right now in mid-September, and what are turkey doctors like yourself up to mid-September? <laughs> yeah, so what, what turkeys are up to, actually, um, I'm actually posting on social media about this tomorrow. And believe it or not, I'll give you credit for the post because the text that you sent me prompted me to think, you know, that's a good question. You texted me and you, you said, hey, birds are just disappearing from places. Like, they were there and they're gone. Yeah. Um, what's up and basically that's the fall shuffle as i term it that's what turkeys are doing right now they're they're transitioning out of their summer ranges where they've spent breeding season and post-breeding season just basically hanging out in small groups um you know three toms over here three hens that didn't hatch over here two broods that that survived over here together 
And now all of a sudden they, they change their MO, if you will, and they, they move. Sometimes they move short distances. Sometimes they may move quite a distance. But they are shifting their home ranges to go find either acorns or waste grain, some stable food crop that is high in energy and carbs and will sustain them through the winter. And when they do that, they get in big flocks, as we know, as we turkey hunters all know, they, they kind of congregate together. A bunch of these smaller groups collapse into these bigger groups. And inside of that bigger group, there's multiple social groups. There's multiple pecking orders. There's a lot of folks, if you will, birds that don't know each other. And they hang out all winter and they move and they move from one food source to the other. That's that's where we're at right now. They're just starting that process. So if you're seeing birds over the next few weeks, you're very likely going to be seeing bigger and bigger groups of birds. You're going, or what prompted this, this post is your birds disappear. Like they were there last week and now they're gone. And I don't have trail camera pictures of them. I don't know where they're at. Well, they're, they're somewhere nearby. They're probably on a neighbor's property or five neighbors away, but they've gotten together with some buddies, if you will, and they are focusing their attention on food and not dying because that's what fall and winter is about. Get in a big group where there's safety with numbers, mm-hmm. find reliable food sources, and exploit them. So that's, that's kind of what turkeys are doing. And then, of course, you'll see that, as y'all know. You'll see that that's the way turkey world runs until late February, early March, when they kind of start going in reverse. Those bigger flocks start splitting up, and, and then it's go time for, for us turkey hunters because it's breeding season. Yeah. So things are pretty stable right now in the turkey world. We don't, we don't see, we see very, very little mortality in the fall and winter. Very little, at least in the south. Uh, we we lose very few birds to predation. We don't thankfully see a lot of poaching or a lot of you know illegal kill in in our study in our research populations. Of course that occurs, but we don't see a lot of it. So things look this is a pretty stable time of year. Things look pretty good for for birds. So um, is their home range pretty? I guess it's like it's small for a moment while they're on a certain food source and then they'll shift food source. And then that like when they find food, are they sticking around it pretty heavy till it's gone? Yeah. Yeah, they do. What you have to, what you have to think about though, is instead of feeding, let's say three hens, you may be feeding 25. Mm -hmm. So, so they exploit those food sources pretty rapidly. So what you tend to see with their home ranges in the fall is they'll use an area and shift use an area and shift, use an area and shift. And they may circle back to areas that they've already visited previously. Um, And that kind of makes sense to me because they'll go exploit something and then they'll move and let that source recover, if you will. So they scarf up the acorns in this bottom and they move to another bottom. Well, they may come back and revisit that bottom Hmm. to, to to collect whatever has dropped since they, you know, since they were in there. So you, you tend to see these kind of revisits, but their home ranges are quite large in the fall, which a lot of people don't realize. That, I mean, we're talking thousands, or even in a month. Oh. They, they cover some ground in the fall, particularly in, yeah. in pine-dominated landscapes where hardwoods are kind of restricted to riparian-type areas, you know, bottoms-type, if you will. Yeah. They really cover some ground in those landscapes, whereas in, say, agricultural landscapes, um, if they can find waste grain, they don't move much at all. So it, it really depends on where you're at. Yeah. So I've 
I've got some follow-up questions to that, but I want you to answer Cameron's second part of Cameron's question, which is what are you and your students doing this time of year? Yeah, so we're, we are getting ready for trapping season. This is the time of year where um, it's boring, (laughs) (laughs) but we're ordering things, which when you deal with a university and agencies, ordering something that seems so simple can be a absolute nightmare. But we're, we're purchasing GPS transmitters. We're purchasing song meters to look at gobbling. We're checking nets. We're checking our charges that we did, you know, deploy the nets with. We're doing inventory on everything, leg bands, you name it. Everything that we use, we're ordering supplies. We're getting ready. We're posting position announcements to hire technicians to help students. We're securing vehicles. We're, I mean, you name it. We're, we're getting ready for go time, which is trapping season because if, in my line of work, if you don't catch birds, you can't do your job. So, yeah. So that's kind of what we're doing. Students that have finished their field work, which I have several now that are in this situation, you know, we're, we being me are working with them, pushing them towards completion of their degrees, whether it's analyzing data, writing thesis or dissertation chapters, writing manuscripts, you, you name it. Um, so it's actually a pretty busy time. It, it's not the funnest time of year. It's certainly not as enjoyable as the the winter trapping and spring when when things you kind of see the rewards you know of their work and it's not mm. it's not my work that's i'm always careful to point that out my my graduates run the ship they they work hard and they do that because one they they cherish the resource two they 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 want a degree and three they they have respect for for me and 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 what i'm trying to accomplish with them because they i mean it's it I need them. They're critical to what yeah. to what I do. So so they work really hard. And this is a time of year where they've been, you know, they've been in the field eight months. They've, they've been going hard for eight months from January to August. And now this is a time of year where they can take a little deep breath, but a lot of them are in classes as well. And they're kind of going through this minutia, if you will, that I just talked about of, okay, we've, I need an inventory on this. I need to understand how many of that we have. That's kind of what we're doing in the turkey research world. Just just getting ready for for winter trapping season, which is you know, which is chaos and it's a lot of work. But the preparation to go there is key. Yeah, that's cool. So you know, you you mentioned that turkeys are probably you know, at this stage in the southeast, or really probably in the east, looking for those food sources like acorns and waste grain and that kind of thing. Are I don't know. I, I kind of always had in my head that this was the time of year that they would kind of, you know, really hit these protein sources last, you know, for, for one last run before bugs get hard to find and that kind of thing. Is that generally not the case? They're they're looking for something that's, you know, high in starch, high in carb kind of thing at this point? It really kind of depends on where you're at in turkey range so in the deep south you know we're in a situation where they don't really need high carb food what do we you know towards the latter part of september it's hot yeah right so i mean they don't need high carb food so our birds saying southern birds are still eating uh and in some ways they're still kind of using summer resources, green succulent fields, they're still eating bugs. But um, as soon as 
acorns start to fall, if you think about it from a turkey's perspective, there's very little energy expended for what you obtain mm, with an true. acorn. Yeah, that's so you, you're not out there chasing bugs. You're not peck. So your your pecks per intake, if you will, so how many times they peck to to suck up a food source is dramatically lower with acorns because they're just laying there. Mm-hmm. So and they're super abundant. I mean, think about it. You get under a couple of trees that are dropping, and you're in. You know, you're there. I mean, you don't have to move, so they don't have to forage as long to intake the required nutrition and energy for that day which means that they can loaf more and if you can loaf more you're less susceptible to being killed because you're not moving you're just sitting so that's why you tend to see even though they don't really quote unquote need to stock up on fat or build fat reserves as soon as acorns start hitting the ground they start using them same with waste grain i mean it it kind of again it makes sense it's it's an easy prey source um but if you look at diet stuff from years ago yeah you still saw you'll still see occasional insects and various seeds show up in crops even into the fall but you do see this pretty strong shift once acorns hit the ground they they progressively are going to wean themselves off of other prey and and just consume the easy resource that's high in energy yeah that makes a lot of sense when you put it in the energy expelled that I have never thought of it that way, but that, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Cause from their perspective, you know, in the bird world, weight matters, like body yeah. mass matters. Yeah. So if you're, if you're a hen or Tom, it behooves you to come out of the winter bigger. If you're bigger, you're likely to be more successful. Your nutrients, your body reserves are higher. If you're a hen, that means that Perhaps you can nest earlier, early nests are more successful. If you're a tom and you can come out of the winter and you're in good body, you know, good health, your body condition scores are super high, then you go into breeding season and you, you're more competitive than your compadres. Yeah. So it really, it really behooves a turkey to not move a lot. Although what I've said, you know, they, they will use large ranges, but inside of those ranges, once they identify easy prey, they camp out on. It makes sense for them to do that because they want to burn as little as they can and then take as much as they can. You always hear, you know, they group up by sex this time of year. The gobblers and jakes are kind of off on their own. The hens are, are they both using the same food source most of the time? Because I, I fall turkey hunt here and most of the time I see hens and the gobblers, they're not together per se, but they're usually around the same kind of area. Is yeah. that usually the case? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We tend to see that. Always exceptions. But yeah, if you've got a, a super abundant food source, you may see that a flock of hens is using the same hardwood bottom as a group of toms. They may not do it at the exact same time, obviously, mm-hmm. but they do it. And we see this a lot while we're trapping. You'll You'll have a group of birds that show up and they're there for a couple of days, and then they're gone, and suddenly there's another group of birds. So, for instance, you have, you know, a group of hens, they're there for a few days, and you they hit your site, and they're gone. And then all of a sudden, there's a group of jakes or a group of toms or something that hits it, and then the hens show up again. So, they, they're kind of bouncing around and using those, those same food resources, because collectively they all have I mean, this group of birds has a range they have a you know a home range that they're all using but they're overlapping those ranges with all sorts of other birds so it, it makes sense that 
you would have that situation you just described where you got a bunch of different birds and they just kind of pop in and out of the same area to use the same resource. Yeah, because past couple of years when I find, you know, hen feathers or hen tracks or something, I start kind of digging in there because I'm like, all right, they're here for a reason. I bet the toms aren't far. Yeah. And yeah. that's paid off for me because it, it seems like it's easier to find hens this time of year than it is the gobblers. They're They're just ghosts. <laughs> they really are. That's the strange thing, too. The toms just disappear. It's almost like they just melt into the ground. Yeah, it, um, it's unbelievable. Yeah, it's, it's weird. It's really weird. And if you look at telemetry data on them, they're there. They just, they're, and if you kind of think about it, they're not observable and they don't want to be. You mm-hmm. know, they, we're, we're kind of used to seeing, as turkey hunters, we're kind of used to the spring, you know, romance, if you will. And we see birds and we see a strutter. Well, okay, I saw a strutter in that field. Well, as soon as they're out of that breeding mode, they don't they don't necessarily want to be seen. And as they're transitioning from using open areas with bugs and seeds to using hard mass like acorn, they logically end up in places where we're not going to see them as much. And their flocks are not as large as hen flocks. Mm. So you you just tend to not see them as often, you know, this camera, you'd swear, you'd swear, but what? they're gone. Like they're, they're just not even here. You know, they're <laughs> there. They're just, they don't want to be seen. And suddenly they pop back. It's almost like they pop out of the ground in February or March and they're there again. Yeah. That's what, when people ask me about fall turkey hunting, I'm like, try, just try to imagine trying to find a gobbler that's not in fields and isn't sounding off his location, you know, in the morning and, and throughout the day it, it's a lot more difficult when they're not gobbling and you can't hear them from a half mile you know? yeah yeah somebody that goes and routinely kills i'd say cons- if they are consistent in harvesting toms not jakes but toms in the fall you're doing something to do that 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 is not an easy task because like you just said they don't they're not observable they're making no noise they're acting like a hen and that makes it tough. So if you can identify toms, go hunt them in the fall and consistently harvest them, you're you're doing something. That's tough. That's, that's not an easy task. Yeah, I agree. I'm about to subject myself to it yet again this year. So <laughs> it can be maddening and frustrating. I, I remember I don't fall turkey hunt anymore. I just don't really have the opportunity. And growing up, that was I did that a lot. Man, talk about a frustrating experience. And then all of a sudden, it's like eat one day. It just yeah, it just happens to fall into your lap. You're like, man, this hour wasn't bad. And then you recollect on the previous five days when you just seen there were no turkeys like on the planet. And then suddenly mm-hmm. you were there and you harvested one and, and all's good. It's tough. It's fun and rewarding in its own aspect, I guess. But that's cool. So the so they are hanging around usually the same food source. Do y'all trap? I mean, y'all are doing studies, so I assume y'all don't trap any, like, predators as part of these studies. Y'all are trapping turkeys coming up, right? Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I mean, my I have. I mean, I've, I've had research that trap. I've done a bunch of research on coyotes, bobcats, raccoons. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've done work where we trap predators, but the research projects that I have right now don't involve predator trapping. It's just, it's trapping birds it's looking at gobbling activity and various other things in those in those turkey populations yeah and i assume mortality rate of turkeys over winter is low because of the giant flocks yeah that they're you know they're not they're not risky they're not doing anything risky in the 
in the fall and winter. You know, so hens aren't sitting still for a month. They're not trying to raise a brood that's noisy and obnoxious. They're so they're they're in self maintenance mode. You know, they're taking care of themselves. There's a bunch of them together, so there's a lot of eyes and ears and, and we just we don't lose we don't lose birds in the fall and winter. Very, very rarely. I, I mean I it's very rare for us to have a mortality event from September to January or February. It, I mean, it happens again, but it's it's not common at all hmm. for either sex. Well, that's comforting to know when you see turkeys this time of year that they got a good chance of making it to spring. Yeah. yeah. If you see a bird right now, young or old, chances are that bird is going to be in in the breeding population in the spring. It's, you know, our problem, as y'all both know, is just getting the damn things to, to that point. <laughs> it's, it's hard getting them to the fall. That That's the problem into. We don't really see, we don't really see any issues with mortality in the fall. Speaking of that, have you noticed on the properties that you guys are doing your studies on that you had a good hatch this year? It was, it was a bit hit and miss. We had several of our sites, we had fairly low, but honestly, Andy, consistently low. In other right. words, yeah, the same rate we've had almost every other year, 18, 20% no success, which is not, not what we're looking for. Um, if you look at sites from North Carolina all the way over to Louisiana, there were a few that had nest success that, you know, crept into the 30s and 40%. But brood survival wasn't wasn't great on those sites. So when you kind of when you kind of factor it out, with one exception, which is a, a study area in South Carolina that I'm working on, um, we saw you know averaging in, in the mid 20s, if you will. Uh, the site in South Carolina we had we had mid 30s, and we had excellent brood survival. That's actually a site that's not hunted. It, it's not. There's no spring hunting on that right. site or fall yeah. hunting. Is that the one that borders the WMA that y'all are studying both public and non-hunted populations? Yeah, that's the Savannah River site. Yeah. Yeah, that's the Savannah River site near Aiken, South Carolina. And that's a that's a facility. Basically, it's, it's about 200,000 acres. There is an adjacent WMA that's part of SRS that is Cracker Neck Wildlife Management Area. That area has a very restricted hunting season. They you, they only hunt. They allow hunting for a couple of days and it's closed, mm-hmm. you know, for the for a week and then it opens back up. SRS actually has historically allowed a wounded warriors hunt for two days on a very small portion of the of the facility that That's netted awesome. a, you know twenty twenty five toms a year out off two hundred thousand acres since COVID hit there's been that they even stopped that so the past two years there's been there's been no no disturbance no harvest nothing thousand acres (laughs) yeah yeah how yeah so go ahead do y'all have any data from the studies on those two sites yet yeah we just well we've been doing gobbling work on srs for this would be the seventh year that we did it uh, we started trapping hens. South Carolina Department of Natural Resources was gracious enough to fund a research project for me to come in and trap hens and toms and do a reproductive study to figure out, you know, what is what is the population that's not being subjected to hunting look like? Like, what is how do they function? Do they function the same as our hunted population? Yeah. Is something what's different? And if there is something different, what is 
it and what's the magnitude of difference. So we yeah. just finished our, our first year of field work on the hen aspect of the population. And we did see, a, a, granted, it's, it's one year of data, so take it for what it's worth. But as you can could as you can imagine, if you look at gobbling activity on a non-hunted site, it's dramatically different than a hunted site. Yeah, um, a lot more. You know, seven <laughs> years of oh, it's yeah, it's what you would expect. You you see a lot of gobbling activity early. You see kind of a peak, and then you see it slowly decline. So from from March all the way through the end of May, there's a lot of gobbling, and some of the gobbling in May rivals what you see in March. Hmm. kind of this predictable bell curve if you will the reproductive data were were also interesting we we again we saw higher nest success this year on that site than our other sites we saw higher brood survival and the habitat is the same pretty much as my other study sites but what was really really interesting to me which i don't know if this will hold it's one year of data so take caution here but yeah the nesting season was really short um in other words what we see in our in our other populations, all of them, is, and I've, I've said this in other podcasts, I've presented it to people because it's impactful to me. I don't know exactly what's causing it, or, and I'm sure there's many factors, but it, it's concerning to me. When I was a graduate student in the 1990s, you would see nesting ramp up in April and May, and it was done. By June, it was over with, and you just didn't see June and July nest. It was over with in about six to eight weeks is done. And fast forward to where we are now, and we see nesting effort, meaning the onset of incubation, the day that she starts sitting, all the way from the very end of March, a very low number of nests. It peaks in the deep south from about mid to late April, depending on which state you're in and the latitude. And we have nesting all the way into and through July. So the nesting season for this bird is taking four months. Mm. And that and that's not a good thing because when you have nests that are out there for that long, there's no predator swamping involved. In other words, this bird is, is adapted to putting a pulse of nest on the landscape at one time because if they do that, predators can't possibly find all of them in that window of time that they're sitting there. Right. You see this with waterfowl. You see this with, with many species. And our, our birds are not doing it in, in the populations we're studying. It's taking them too, I think, too long. And I don't know what the cause of that. I don't know if it's, I, I have suspicion, but I don't know what is causing it. But it was interesting to me that on this non-hunted population, just again, one year of data, we didn't see that. We saw this really dramatic increase in nesting effort. It peaked and then it hit the floor just like that within a month they were done six weeks it was over with and that's that's the way it it's supposed to function um why it's not doing that in our other populations i I don't know could it be influenced by by hunting sure but we don't know the magnitude of that influence so that study has just really just gotten started with the the hen data but i'll really be interested to see what we find over the next few years Maybe this year was an anomaly. Maybe it was just a weird year. I don't know, but it's a cool study, and I'm I'm looking forward to it because I think, and and the state agency thinks this should be how turkeys function normally. I would think 
right? So there's there's no harvest, there's no disturbance, there's no, you know, it's 200,000 acres of forest yeah. that's managed like yeah. you would manage other forests. There's clear cutting and there's this and there's burning and there's that, but there's no harvest. No birds are dying because of humans on this site. So you would think that that would be kind of a proxy for this is how turkeys function without us kind of interfering in the system. I'm interested to see. We, we're studying all sorts of, I mean, we're looking at we're looking at everything you can think of, genetics, we're looking at relatedness, you name it. We're, we're taking a huge swing with this study in hopes that it will provide us with a snapshot of, okay, this is, this is how turkeys function normally. Now, can we take this and then compare it to our other populations and make inferences about you know, those populations and what, what influences we may be having? How to build hunting into it without affecting their natural being i guess yeah i mean y'all i mean we all know this is if if you think that that our activities have no influence on this bird i i would i would say that's just nonsense i mean we know we know that that hunting and disturbance just let's just say disturbance influences animals we know that we know it's not a turkey question it's it's all the species that we chase and we and as hunters we cherish I mean, we spend time chasing and harvesting these animals. We know that those things influence the animals. At the end of the day, it's just, well, what's the magnitude of effect? If it's very small, then who cares, if you will? If it's not very small, then, well, okay, if it's significant and it's impactful, well, then what do we do about it? Or what should agencies do about it? That gets to be a contentious topic for people because, you know, it's involving us and, and turkey hunters. In my opinion, turkey hunters are why turkeys are here. I mean, we cherish this bird. We've worked hard. We've contributed millions and hundreds of millions of dollars to state coffers to manage this bird. We do that because we want to chase this bird and we cherish the opportunity to experience the hunt. So in many ways, that conversation, you know, what what effect does hunting have gets to be really contentious because in many ways, we are the reason <laughs> that turkeys are where they are today. Absolutely. Yeah. I have a question for you that I'm hoping you can shed some light on. You may tell me, hey, just a coincidence or yes, we see this, you know, from time to time or we see this this time of year. But so one of the pieces of property that I hunt had just a tremendous hatch. And one day, midsummer, I saw two different groups of hens and poles. And the one of the groups, I think, and and I'm not going to get the numbers correct because I can't remember the numbers, but let's just say it was four adult hens and 18 poles. Uh-huh. The next group was three adult hens and 20 poles. Uh-huh. And so what I've noticed is, and so I'm I'm in and out of this area a good bit driving through, and I've seen. I'm I'm going to, of course, assume it's the same flocks in the same areas. But what I'm seeing today is different than what I was seeing two months ago. What I'm seeing today is I'm seeing a hen or two hen, two adult hens with a smaller group of poults, like uh-huh. six to eight poults. And I'm wondering, is it, you know, did... Some of these chicken-sized poults who were perfectly able to fly get picked off by predators, and I'm sure that 
some of them did. But did that happen? Was that the more likely scenario, or is it a more likely scenario that these bigger flocks or bigger groups of adult hens and poults have split up into smaller groups, at least temporarily? Yeah, it's, it's unlikely they split up. They will they will stay together. You will start seeing some shuffling, if you will, but you typically don't see those broods that are together just dissolve. Um, okay. The two scenarios that pop out to me is one, those birds that you have, were seeing have shifted their range. They may not be that far, but they've, they've moved. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do see as broods age, as they get bigger and bigger and bigger, they use more and more space, as you'd expect. Um, so you'll often see the same birds in the same area. And then all of a sudden, when they are essentially juveniles, when they're getting beyond chicken size, they, they're gone. They may, they may shift their ranges, and it may not be a very short distance. They may be quite some distance away. Um, so you may have just had some birds essentially replace your birds that you were seeing. Sure. We don't we don't see a tremendous amount of loss in hens later in the brooding period. Once those poults are chicken size, we don't see we don't see much mortality of hens. Makes sense. And we don't think we see much mortality of poults, but I'll I'll be honest with you, that's one of the big unknowns in the turkey world is uh, what happens to these broods that are six weeks old or two months old? Do they survive? Do those poults that are now young turkeys, do they survive until the, the spring? Or do we also lose some of them in, in the fall and winter? Again, we don't lose adult bird in the fall and winter very often, but there's an important distinction there. When we catch these birds in the winter, they're already big enough to wear a GPS transmitter. What we don't understand is from like, say, July through December, do any of those birds that were hatched this summer die? That's a tough question to get at because they're not big enough to wear. In, in the fall, they're they're not, at least early fall, they're not big enough to wear a transmit that an adult would wear. And we don't trap during the fall very often. We Some people do. Um, if, if that makes sense to you, it's tough to get a transmitter on that three or four month old turkey and track he or she until the spring that that's a tough it's a tough thing to do so we don't really know a lot about their survival you know when they're say three or four months old we think it's probably pretty good and my suspicion is it is but i don't know that for certain okay all right yeah i mean that would make sense you know there's nothing tying those turkeys to that area it's not like they're you know inside a cage so no no yeah the other thing you'll see with you know fall and winter flocks i was just talking to somebody about this the other day that she's a fantastic photographer and she, she sees she takes pictures of turkeys constantly so she sees things that that i can't see and i value her perspectives because she's seeing what I'm trying to infer from telemetry data. She's seeing it with her own eyes. And she posed a question to me by text. We were, we were bouncing back and forth about, okay, well, with these big flocks of these birds that you see in the winter, well, who are they? Like, do they know each other? Do they, you know, is this something that they're all one social group? And what research years ago showed, although the way they, they kind of inferred this 
we're testing this now and we'll have some answers soon. But what they inferred was that these bigger winter flocks, you know, these monster flocks that you see, they may be composed of multiple social groups. So in your case, Andy, I'll use your example. So your group of of four hens with 20 poults or whatever it was, they move and they end up flocking with some group of birds from four properties away. Mm -hmm. And that flock suddenly goes from using, you know, they were using your property that you have access to, and now they're three properties away. Instead of using a couple of hundred acres, they're going to suddenly start using two, three, four, five thousand acres. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be in this big bunch. Um, that big bunch may or may not even know each other. And there's there's speculation as to why turkeys do this, if that is in case what they do. One line of thought is that if you go spend the time in the fall and winter with birds you're not related to, that when you disperse from your winter flocks, you are likely to end up in smaller groups with birds you are also not related to. Right. And that may that may seem weird, but yeah, that makes sense. That from the standpoint of breeding with the same toms, which these smaller mm-hmm. groups of hens do, kind of makes sense. It quote unquote mixes the population. Right. Um, we don't really know if for certain if this happens. We're we're looking at this now. I have a student looking at this now with genetics work. But that's what previous researchers suggested happened. And if that's the case, it does make sense that your your groups that you saw just disappeared. They they they've gone and maybe not all of them, but some of them just disappear. And they end up in a group a couple miles down the road because they're mixing, if you will, the population. Yeah. Okay. That's fascinating and things I've never considered <laughs> about the, the winter yeah. flock. Mother nature's amazing. Yeah. It is. Yeah, it is. It's it's pretty cool. I mean, there's so much. You know, science is no it's, science is not absolute. I mean, I can tell you something today that I'll prove wrong tomorrow, um, and that frustrates a lot of people. And it, and it it gets me in hot water with with some people that that they see life as being black and white. But you know, the fact is, we don't understand a lot about this bird, and that's a good thing, in, in my opinion. Um, and I get paid to study this bird, and I I love I cherish it. But not knowing everything is is cool because it if you're if you're a turkey fanatic you know, like we are, it it causes you to sit there and ponder. You know, like well, why is that? And and sometimes not having the answers, but having a little bit of information so that your mind twirls to me is a is a good thing. This bird is a complex. As as all wildlife species are, this bird is complex. They they have behaviors and they have they have aspects of their populations that likely we will never understand. And their social dominant, their social hierarchies, and these these flocks and what they mean is one of those things. I don't think we'll ever fully understand yeah. what's going on there. And maybe that's not a maybe that's not a bad thing. You know, if we knew it all and understood it all, we would have just had you on the show one time. You could have shared everything that you knew, and then that'd have been right. it. I mean, you know, but uh, there's uh, th- there's more. There's so much that we don't know. There's yeah. there's so much, and I'm I'm running out of time in my career. I, I I'm not going to do this forever. I'm yeah. You know, at some point, I'll run out of gas, and I'll I'll get tired of the the criticism and the plaque and this and that. And and but right now, 
I'm enjoying my work because people are, are paying attention to this bird and there's a lot, we're learning so much so fast. The only time, and I will say this and I'll, an old timer will listen to this and probably contact me and get mad. But outside of the period when we were restoring turkey, when we were trapping and transporting and studying turkeys to learn basics about their behavior, what habitat did it? What's their home range size? What's their survival? Those basic things. Outside of that time, right now, we're learning information about this bird that's as impactful as any other time that we've studied this bird. Mm. Because we're learning things that we thought we knew that were wrong. And we're also getting insights because of technology and tools that are offering the chance to answer some questions we just couldn't answer. You know, we had to kind of infer. We had to, like, see something and think, well, I think that's why that's happening. And now we're in a situation where we can we can really prove some things that we just don't know. And honestly, it's generating as many questions as it is answers with me. I mean, I see some of the information that my students, you know, will bring in my office and say, hey, I just I just did this. And holy crap, look at this. And they'll show me a figure. Or they'll email me something and say, I don't know what to make of this. What do you think? And I look at it. The result is, is interesting. And, and some of it is super interesting for turkey hunters, for hunters and land managers. And then other things that we're finding are just from a behavioral standpoint are just super interesting. And it just causes me to scratch my head and think, well, why, if this is a common behavior, why do they do that? Like we just talked about, well, why do these flocks mix like that? And, and how long have we known, had this happening right under our nose and we just didn't know it? And what does it mean? Yeah, so that uncertainty, that search for information about this bird, that's what gets me up in the morning. That's what makes me go to work, keeps me engaged, and hopefully it'll push me to the finish line of retirement, which, uh I'm looking at, but it's just not close enough. I hope it's we'll, not. We'll, we'll, <laughs> it's not. It's not. But man, I tell you, some days it's like, gosh, I'd like to put myself to pasture, but but then other days I'm like, no, no, you need to keep, you need to keep plugging. Yeah, yeah. Keep, keep plugging, man. We we want you to, and you know, more Africa trips, more spending money in Africa, more sable. You know, keep keep studying the turkey. <laughs> yeah, no, the sable, that's a one-time deal. I can promise you <laughs> another sable will never come into my house unless I'm divorced, and I don't want to be divorced. So. That'll cost you way more than a sable. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, the sable will be small peanuts compared to a divorce, and I don't have any interest in leaving my wife so or having her leave me. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go with that one sable and call it a career. Uh, yeah, well, he made it a good one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, good deal. Well, Cameron, did you have anything else for Mike? One quick question. I think this would be pretty quick. I hear this a lot from people like, we just need to ban fall turkey hunting. That's what's, that's the big problem. And, you know, you look at the fall harvest. I mean, I get northeast states seem to be more into the fall hunting, but is that really a big problem facing this bird? Is the fall harvest of turkeys? Yeah, so this this is actually a question that has been being bounced around quite a bit. And the short, there is no real short answer, but here's the answer. The bottom line is fall harvest has always been looked at as a numbers game. In other words, the research that has, and this has been modeling work, this has been predictive work. In other words, what happens if we harvest this percentage of the population or that percentage? That work has largely ignored spring harvest 
and has focused simply on fall harvest. Mm -hmm. And that's that's an important distinction. And what that work has shown is that, in general, if you harvest single-digit percentages of the population in the fall, the prediction was that it would not have a negative effect. Now, I say all that. Those studies were done when we were making a lot more turkeys than we are making now. Production was higher, much higher. Again, those studies were done generally ignoring spring harvest as if it has no effect on populations, which I think is nonsensical, frankly, that it would have no effect. Again, we we don't know in some cases what the effect is. The other thing that... Just, I would think. Yeah, the, the other, yeah, the other thing that gets me about about fall harvest, and this, this is this is something that, that I think people need to consider that agencies allowed fall harvest during a time when turkey populations were exploding. Honestly, some states opened fall seasons to reduce turkey abundance, mm-hmm. like give opportunity to folks like us that want to hunt turkeys and allow them to kill more birds. Those days in most states are over. We're we're not in a situation where we're trying to reduce populations, obviously. And like you mentioned, you know, there's not a lot of interest in fall turkey hunting in many states. Some states, particularly the Northeast, Mid-Atlantic, yes, there's still some interest. But in a lot of areas, there's not near the interest as there is in in spring hunting, obviously. The way I look at fall harvest is is twofold. Uh, One is... Let's, if you look at this and think about it, there's three possible outcomes of fall harvest. It either positive effect, meaning it helps the population. I think we would all agree that's not the case. <laughs> no, it doesn't no, help the population. fall or spring are going to help. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so we're going to swipe that one away. The other two possible outcomes is it has no effect or it has a negative effect. That's the two possible outcomes. I think it ultimately depends on where you are and what your population doing at that, you know, time A or time B. If you're very close to the no effect, then fall harvest may mean nothing. Mm-hmm. If you are teetering over there towards the line of negative effect, then it may be worth taking a look at. This is Mike's opinion. Yeah. Because, again, I think we've always looked at fall harvest as just numbers. And one thing we know from fall harvest that's telling to me is that fall harvest tends to be dominated by juveniles and females. Yeah. Young birds and female birds. And as you know, Cameron, you've hunted toms in the fall. They're tough. Yeah. If you look at the sex and age distribution of fall harvest, you don't shoot, folks don't harvest many adult toms. Yeah. You tend yes. to see juvenile males and females and juvenile females. Well, in my eyes, if that's the case, then you're trimming some of what you've had. You're trimming that off. Mm-hmm. Now, again, does that matter? Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe the percentage of birds that are harvested in the fall is so low that it has no effect. But again, I think if you're looking, if you're teetering towards that line of you're reducing the population in a way where it may have a negative effect, then I think agencies, you know, are are looking at that and and asking, well, should we keep doing this? And, and, you know, honestly, I mean, if you look, a lot of agencies have have reduced fall opportunity quite a bit. Yeah. Part of that is, you know, part, part of that is they, there's just not a super demand for it. So 
I think there's a recognition that, you know, spring hunting is in many ways, and I don't, I don't want to slight or upset anyone that's a traditional fall turkey hunter by any means, but that's where this, you know, that's where this practice has moved. The spring hunting craze is, is where turkey hunting has evolved to. And so that's kind of put fall hunting in, in kind of an, an odd situation. And I, to your question, I suspect agencies are, are going to keep evaluating fall harvest because there aren't there's just not a lot of demand for it and and y'all know this too i mean fall hunting there's so many other things to do you know there there's so many other competing yeah waterfowl and deer and you know people traveling and going places and hunting this and hunting that and you know and turkey hunting is is just not as big as it was i mean when i was growing up fall turkey hunting was huge i mean it was huge when we when we could go we went and we make you know piggyback it with some squirrel hunting or whatever if we were deer hunting and we you know we were able to encounter birds we tried to harvest them and if you look you know a lot of agencies have moved away from that model they've they've restricted fall hunting to these kind of narrow windows of time and they've reduced bag limits to the point where there's just not a tremendous amount of opportunity so I, to your question, uh, yeah, that discussion is something many states have. And, I, and again, I just all boils down to what is your population in your state and your area look like? What percentage of the population are you harvesting in the fall? That's going to dictate whether it matters at all. It may not matter at all or whether yeah. it may matter. And if it, if it may matter, then, you know, that's obviously something agencies want to look at. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like Tennessee, it used to be three birds, either sex per County was the fall season, <laughs> which yeah. just was absurd in my opinion. And now it's one bearded Turkey. So it's bearded birds only. And so, I mean, we, we get nine days to hunt with a shotgun and it's bearded bird only. So, I mean, you're, you're looking at almost no harvest at this point. I mean, very few, yeah. and the ones that are are males at least. So I think we're. Yeah. I don't think we're harming much of a population here in Tennessee during the fall. Yeah, and you know, you move to to a to a regulation like that, and I mean, really, all you're doing is taking some birds in the fall that would be available in the spring. That's essentially yeah. all you're doing. Yeah, there's going to be a few bearded hens shot. You know, okay, but really, that type of season framework all you're doing is taking out some small group of birds that would have otherwise been maybe been available in the spring i think the the seasons that are that are more liberal and and allow harvest of you know of hens and of males and females those are i mean i i think those are the ones i get asked more about it's not mm-hmm. really the states like Tennessee that have, you know, regulations that are pretty strict. It's more just that harvest a lot of birds in the fall of either sex. Those tend to be the ones that people reach out to me and say, well, what do you think about this? And, and like I just said, I, I think there's a lot we don't know about fall harvest because, again, we've always kind of assumed it was a numbers game. And, and those seasons were in place for reasons that, for the most part, don't exist today. I mean, we're not in a situation where we're trying to. Yeah. With some exceptions. We're not trying to reduce populations now, but we're also, I say we, agencies are also trying to give you and I opportunity. They want us out there. They want us to be able to do the things that we cherish. They want to pursue this bird. So they're in a kind of, they're walking a tightrope, if you will. You know, they're trying to give you some opportunity without, you know, causing detriment to the population. I think that's where a lot of agencies will ultimately head with fall harvest, but we'll see. Hard to say. I mean, 
like Kentucky is interesting to me. They have like, I think it's a four bird total limit. No more than one can have a beard greater than six inches. And no more than one other one can have a beard. So like it, it's basically you can kill two hens, a Jake and a gobbler. Yeah. <laughs> and, or all four hens. It, it's just like, that's, I mean, what a weird. Yeah. Act. And you know, some of that's, just, some of that's just relic. I mean, some of, some of the regulations you see, you know, y'all know this regulation, changing regulations is a contentious issue. <laughs> huh. um, you don't Alabama say. Wasn't a, Alabama yeah. wasn't upset at all about losing that fifth bird, I'm sure. No, no. Yeah. Yeah. We won't go there, but you know, when you change seasons, that gets people frustrated and I get it. That get. I get it because I'm a hunter and I, and I don't want to lose opportunity and neither do you. We, we want to be able to chase this bird and do the things we enjoy. And yeah, when you start changing seasons, people get upset. And, and I think some of the fall seasons, I, I, I think this is my opinion. And I've looked at seasons for every state in this country. I think some of those are just a relic of that's what was in place at some point. And Either it's not on a radar screen or the harvest is not, the agency thinks the harvest is not, you know, it's not enough to be impactful based on what they think is out there. So they just don't, you know, they don't worry about it and they move on. You know, again, I I hope we don't continue down the road that we're on with turkeys. I really do. I I hope that we see populations, you know, the declines we're seeing. I hope we see them kind of slow down. I hope we see some improvements. And each day I'm thinking, you know, I'm like, I really hope this year is the year. I hope next year is the year. But I think as these declines become more widespread, and they are becoming more widespread, states that historically were considered to be, and you all know this, boom, boom states are seeing issues themselves, and they know something's wrong. I, I, I suspect that you will see agencies scrutinize fall hunting seasons more. Because yeah. the opportunity, you know, the interest in fall hunting is so dramatically less than spring yeah. hunting, regard, regardless of the effect. Yeah. Well, you know, we're seeing it in spring seasons too. So, you know, you can cut spring back a cert- only to a certain point. You know, these one bird states, where are they going to cut back from here? I mean, you cut back on your season length, and maybe that yeah. saves you some birds in spring. So, what else do you do? Well, Let's cut back to fall because that's yeah. And you know, if you look at some of those states, yeah, I mean, think about an agency that moves to a one-bird bag. If if you don't, I mean, those states are taking a decision that that's a very difficult decision because when you tell us you can only harvest one bird, that changes your entire outlook on the hunting season. I mean, I know it would for me if you told me you can harvest one bird and you're done. That's impactful. That, that that changes my perspective of the season. It changes my mindset. Um, that's tough. I mean, that's tough if you're a hunter in that state or you're a hunter visiting that state. But then you, you flip the script and you think about it from the agency's perspective. I hope that you're open-minded enough to consider what it took for them to make that decision. That's not an easy decision. In in some states that have done this previously, you know, they they saw declining interest. They saw license sales decreases. These states are taking a a calculated risk. But like you just said, where, you know, where do they go from there? Do they, if states that are 
that are changing bag limits and season lengths and these things, if they do not see an improvement, where do they go from there? Well, the logical assumption is they make further changes, and that's tough for us. It's tough for us to stomach because those changes negatively affect our ability to, to do this activity. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I think a lot of people are paying attention now that weren't paying attention a couple of years ago. I think that's a good thing, whether they're mad or not. I think that's a fact. Is irrelevant to me? Yeah, they're paying attention. They may be mad. They may <laughs> voice those opinions on social media or they whatever, but they're still paying attention. And that's a good thing. So I, I'm optimistic. I think the more we learn, the more we're introspective, the more we reflect on our own activities, the more that we're willing to engage with each other, sometimes in a way that is not always touchy-feely and hunky-dory, if we're willing to have difficult conversations and, and consider other perspectives and work collectively as a group, hunters, then we can make a difference. We can right the ship, but it's, it's going to take some work. There's no question. You're right. It is not going to be an easy road to hoe. But we can do it. We can. We can do it. Yeah. Done it once. Yep. We've done it before. Absolutely. We done it. We did it before. We restored this bird. We. I mean, we've been down this road. From way worse than where it is now. Yeah. Oh, big time. Absolutely. Absolutely. We can do it. It's yep. going to take some. It's going to take some willingness to, to sacrifice all of us, whether it's agencies, managers, landowners, hunters. We're all going to have to give a little a little skin. And if we're all for the good of the resource, then we'll we'll make a difference. Yeah, I agree. Well said. Well, said. well Dr. Chamberlain, I sure appreciate you coming on and talking to us about turkey world right now. And September feels like turkey season's about as far away as possible. Spring, at least, but always thinking. Man, about it'll it. be here before you know it. It I will know. be here before you know it. I can't yeah. wait. When Christmas when, when Christmas gets here, oh, it's right around the corner. Yeah, yeah. it's on. <laughs> That's when you start taking your vest out and you're like, I'm going to make sure that I know where everything is. Yeah. 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 It's Christmas, it's Christmas break. Be above 30 on Wednesday. I might have to go listen, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Like, thank, thank you. So you. Much. Yeah. We really appreciate your time yeah. and what you do for the bird. And not a problem guys. I appreciate you having me on. It was good talking to you. Good talking to you too. Have a great night. Yeah, man. You too. All right. Bye. Goodbye. All right. I learn something every time. I'm telling I mean, you. I'm telling you. I had but, never considered they get in those big flocks and then redisperse, you know, potentially to keep from, I guess, incest occurring heavily. Yeah. But, you know, that makes really good sense, like, for nature to work that way. And there were so many other things he said in that interview that I, I was like, huh. You know, the acorns thing, how easy the energy expelled to get acorns is. It's like, that makes sense, you know. Yeah. It's not about how rich the food is. It's, you know, if I can expel X amount of energy for easy amounts of food, that trumps everything, you know? Exactly. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So uh, that was that was cool. And then hearing him just destroy my theory about these bigger <laughs> family groups of He did it nicely. Hens. Oh, yeah. Well. He wasn't, he wasn't like, yeah, that's completely wrong. So. Yeah, you're, you're stupid. <laughs> Well, I mean, why would turkeys group up when they're young and then disperse for two months and then get back together? I mean, come on. Andy, Andy, leave the leave it up to the scientists to decide these things. Don't make assumptions, man. <laughs> oh, well, look, we even talked about that in the interview, that that's the majority of the fun for us as turkey hunters is yeah. the speculation. You know, oh, and yeah. then 
you know, when we get some confirmation or, you know, one way or the other to support our thoughts or speculation on whatever's going on, or we get something to, to completely destroy it like Mike did to me, <laughs> then, <laughs> you know, that that's... I enjoy that. I mean, oh, you know, yeah. we all enjoy learning. It's a learning about experience, Burn. man. Yeah. yeah. So I love learning about him. He's he's a very educated man on wild turkey. Spends a lot of time with him, so I you know, believe he knows what he's doing. the The other thing I'll say about him too, that when you think about it, you really expect him to be this way, and and other scientists or biologists if they don't know something they're not really going to be ones to speculate a whole lot or throw out any wild theories you know things like that yeah. because they want to prove it you know and, the, and they don't want to be saying stuff that could be turned back around on them you know at some point yeah. in the future to say oh well you know you said this well you know i, I, I was just talking you know a what if it was this you yeah. know so when Mike says something or doesn't say something, either one, there's good reason for it. Hmm. And so, yeah. good point. You know, I, I like that. But, you know, and, and Brett's the same way. And, you know, so was Jeremy Wood with Arkansas. And, well, he's not, yeah, he trained under Mike Chamberlain. Yeah. Dr. Goolsby. Yep. And so was Grant Wood. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Goolsby and Grant Wood, all those guys. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's cool having these biologists on here to to talk this stuff, man. I mean, I just I can't get enough of it. I know. I really enjoy interviews with the science portion or or habitat management or just insight into turkeys that people who get to spend more hours researching them than I'm able to. What they bring to the table is always interesting to me. Yeah, no doubt. So, cool stuff. I hope yeah, hopefully I can deploy all these things about fall turkeys this this fall turkey season see if i can't use some of the information he gave me to find a fall gobbler i hope you have lots of luck this weekend yeah, i'll have some kind of story i'm sure after the weekend something always happens when you go hunting may not involve turkeys but deer or coyote or something might happen That's i'll sling true. arrows at anything I'm, I'm licensed to kill everything <laughs> there you go pin you a fox squirrel to an oak tree oh yeah that'd be good Take one of them out for sure. Get me some good mm -hmm. squirrel back straps. Man, yeah. Even some squirrel <laughs> knuckles would be good. Oh, yeah. So, all right, cool. What do you say we wrap it up? Yeah, wrap it up, man. We'll see you guys next week. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. We know that you have choices. We appreciate you spending your time with us. We hope you have a wonderful week, and we look forward to seeing you again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe for free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews to help you have a more successful turkey season. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes on hunting afternoon birds, how to film your hunt, and the breeding cycle of hens, as well as some guest interviews. Thanks again for listening. We know your time is valuable, and we appreciate you sharing some of it with us. See you next week.